Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining the Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash the shift and become a member of the Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters community membership, and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's steady.media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40, created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. How does it feel to be catapulted to internet fame literally overnight? My guest this week, CJ Hauser, found out when she wrote a little essay back in 2019 about cranes, as in the birds, not the machinery. 48 hours after it was published, the crane wife had gone viral, had been read millions of times globally and identified with by just about everyone who read it. Now CJ has written a memoir and essays, also called The Crane Wife, because if it ain't broke. It's about love, relationships and the stories we tell ourselves, not, it seems, in order to survive, but in order to set the bar so high, we spend the rest of our lives failing to reach it. Sound familiar? I watch a lot of trashy reality TV and on my trashy reality shows, women are always like, I have dreamed of this day, my wedding day. And I'm like, oh, I've never, no, never that. But I always was like, what if I had my own garden? What if I had 10 dogs? Like, what if I lived with my best friend? Like, those are always the dreams I had. And I think that's kind of the life I am living now. CJ joined me to talk about the unnerving impact of overnight success, being a breakup pro, and learning to live your own dreams, not other people's. Thank you so much for coming on The Shift, CJ. When did you become a CJ? Well, I was always a CJ in that my mother calls me CJ. The J is for Joyce, which is her maiden name. And so it was her way of keeping it in circulation. But I was probably 21, 22, and... I was writing stories and people kept assuming the main characters were women when they weren't. And I was very salty about that. I mean, what I could have done is just write better, clearer stories, but that didn't occur to me. Um, And so I said, that's why I changed it. But I think I was looking for something a little less gendered. I never liked being Mm -hmm. a Christina or a Christie. And so CJ feels a little more myself. Yeah, without those assumptions on it before you even open the book. I feel like a, a Christy, which I was for a long time, like Christy is very sweet and she's very girly. She's maybe wearing, I don't know, like a fluffy sweater. I, I just, I didn't like, I didn't feel like a Christy. 
And this is like getting straight into all the themes of identity and, you know, kind of living up to other people's labels for you that you've written about in The Crane Wife. But is Christy who you thought you should be as opposed to who you felt you were? Something like that. Or it was like, I didn't realize I had any choice. It was just like, yeah, you, we named you. This is your name. Everyone yes. calls you Christy. Yeah. And the moment, it's such a, like an awakening moment being like, can I just not do this? <laughs> like, do I, yeah. do I have a choice? It's like, yeah, if I say, I'd like you to call me CJ, I'd like all of you to call me CJ, people will do it. It's like uh, very empowering. And so, yes, it's about expectations, but it's also about sort of seeing around what seems like a necessary, stable thing that you have to keep. And being like, oh, no, that's actually not permanent. That's not stable. I can change that. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I can't remember exactly how old I was when I decided that I was Sam as opposed to Samantha. Yeah. Because I never really felt like a Samantha. But I can't remember. I think it was about 15, 16, but I'm not 100% sure. But it was a, a real like, no, this fits me. And I never felt like Samantha fitted me. I never felt like I was quite, you know, like you say, girly enough. Yeah. I like the idea of something fitting or like something like sitting right on your body or in your mind. So let's talk. I mean, I'm sure you're going to be so sick to death of this, but let's talk a little bit about the essay that caused all this trouble. If you'd like. <laughs> I do like the idea of causing trouble. <laughs> How did that feel that to be, you know, one day minding your own business and the next day internet famous? <laughs> it was, um, I feel very lucky. I feel still terrified. <laughs> um, it's an interesting thing because we write the things we're interested in writing. Like they all feel urgent to us <laughs> on, on this side of the keyboard. And so it's always sort of shocking to see which are the things that mean something to someone on the other end of the line. And I guess there were a lot of people at the other end of that line. I don't know. I feel like I'm interested in a way that has nothing to do with me. I'm interested in what that's about. Like, what does it mean that so many people were like, oh, yeah, I have made myself small or I have thought if I made myself easy to get on with or if I, I made myself easy to take care of or I didn't need to be taken care of, then I would be worthy of love. And like the fact that so many people were like, yes, that feeling mm. is really what's interesting to me and sad to me. But Maybe now we're talking about it, so it's less sad. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that it resonated so much, that a million people read it. But it is kind of depressing, isn't yeah. it? That, like, is it, what is it, Roxanne Gay said, I've written it down and now, of course, I can't find it. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. I could relate so much to this essay and accepting the bare minimum in relationships just to be loved. And the fact that she put it brilliantly, but so many of us identified with that feeling. Yeah. So people will ask, they're like, isn't it so wonderful? And it's like, I don't know, like it is wonderful, but also I don't want Roxanne Gay to have felt that way. I, I love yeah. Roxanne Gay as a writer. Yeah. I don't want her to feel that way ever. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the essay and writing it. You didn't set out, did you, to write an essay that was quite so personal? No, I did not. <laughs> um, no, I was a fiction writer minding my own business. Um, and I really did want to write about the trip I took to the Gulf. I wanted to write about the Earthwatch organization who do amazing work. I wanted to write about the whooping cranes because I want people to take care of the whooping cranes and the Aransas Preserve. And I knew it was a meaningful time to me and it would have been no matter what. But of course, I had just called off my wedding and I was in a real state when I went down there um, to do the work. And so when I tried to write about the other bits of it without writing about calling off a wedding. I just, I don't know, you know, when you're, am I allowed to say full of shit? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> say whatever you want. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. No, there's this moment on the page where we try to tell the story that we think is the story we have to tell or want to tell or other people want to hear. And then like, you can get pretty good eventually being like, no, I'm, I'm full of shit right now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm holding back. And if you're lucky, you have readers in your life who will tell you that too. But with that one, I was able to realize for myself, like, you're leaving out a very important ingredient. What was the moment? I mean, you had walked out on your imminent marriage at that point and you said you'd almost signed up to live somebody else's life, which not every woman I've spoken to, but a very large number actually did. And then spent the bulk of their 40s kind of unpicking. What was it that gave you the, I don't know, impetus to call quits on it? Yeah, I think, do you know what's funny? I did a reading years ago when the essay came out, it was a, a reading at McNally Jackson. And there was this 20 year old man in the audience during the Q and a, he was like, but 
like, what was the moment that made you leave? (laughs) That's not in the essay. But the tenor of the question was very much like, I did do all those other bad things that guy did in that essay. But like, I need to know what's the one I'm going to do that's going to really make it irredeemable. And the thing is, like, it wasn't like one moment. It was really just like, I reached a point of being so unhappy that I was like, I have to do something. I can't live like this. Like, whatever the alternative is, it's better than how I'm feeling right now. And that maybe has as much to do with me. Like this essay and any of the essays in the book that talk about partners I've had, like it's not about like, oh, here's a partner who wasn't a good partner. It's about my ability to be myself in a relationship and and to not get myself into a relationship where like the terms of the relationship were to not be myself. And so I think that was one of those, like there's nothing more of a hard deadline than marriage. And I think- uh, <laughs> If one is weeping as one is trying on wedding dresses, that's probably a pretty good sign that you're not excited about it. And so, yeah, I don't have a good answer. There is no one moment I just got to a point where I realized, like, I'm too sad. I'm too sad for this to be correct. I guess the thing is, there's often never one moment there is that it's a kind of a buildup and attrition. Yeah. Ultimately, it's like, is it such a terrible old cliche about the straw that broke the camel's back? But that kind of is what it is. It's like eventually it's wearing and it wears and it wears and it wears. And then it does. And I think that there's something and I have had this kind of thinking as well. But I know sometimes I have felt or friends of mine have felt like, oh, like I'm not happy in this relationship, in this friendship, in this job, like whatever it is, but I don't have any quote unquote, like legal grounds for terminating it. You know what I mean? As if you need someone to do something really bad or you need someone to do something where it's like, yes, this is the reason why it is acceptable to leave this, but you can leave it just because you're like, this is not the right job for me. This is not the relationship for me. And I think freeing oneself as much as you can from that sense of needing grounds to make the decision that's going to make you happier is something I still struggle with. But as with everything in this book, it's like I make the same mistakes over and over again. I have not come to a place of beautiful wisdom. I'm just working on it. But that's one of the things I absolutely loved about it. Yeah, it's like not exactly the same mistakes, but the way that we all do, like you learn a lot, but you learn a little. Yeah. How annoying would someone be who just learned the lesson and like moved on and lived a perfect life? (laughs) Imagine. You wouldn't really want to hang out with them though, would you? No, absolutely not. (laughs) I heard you say on another podcast and and you write, in fact, various times you write in the book about the sense that we aren't allowed to need things. I mean, particularly as women, that needing things from someone else makes you weak and that being needy as a woman, in fact, needy, the very word is hideous. Yeah. But needy is a label that's attached to women to denigrate the fact they need anything at all. Mm-hmm. Where do you think you got that from? Oh. <laughs> where does it come from? I, I'm i not sure where it began, but I think, I don't know, maybe I grew up in Connecticut, which is a very polite kind of New England place. Um, and I think I was raised in a way I am grateful for, but it's also problematic with like, there are a lot of manners. And manners in so many ways are about not upsetting other people and not needing Mm -hmm. anything. And like, I don't know, like my cousin always talks about this thing where you ask for a cup of tea three times or you you offer a cup of tea three times. Sorry. And then this is the first time it's just a concept and there might not be tea in the house. The second time there might be tea in the house, but you might not have a right to it. And the third time it's like, no, there is tea in this house and you are welcome to have it. And like, that's what manners are about. It's about making sure you're not taking more than is yours or taking up too much space and sort of soothing things for other people. And it's about respect, but it's also about, I don't know. I think a lot of that is maybe tied up with like, it is impolite to need a thing. Yeah. When you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, very often when somebody offers me a cup of tea, even my husband, and if he was listening to this right now, which he is not, he would be crying, laughing. (laughs) Someone offers me a cup of tea. I say, if you're making. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. They didn't ask if you wanted to know if they were making tea. They asked if you wanted tea. And perhaps you do. And they would be happy to make it for you if you signaled you wanted it. But that feels mortifying, like even just describing that out loud. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cringy. (laughs) You often say you're ashamed about what you put up with. And I wonder how many times when we're putting this on ourselves, as I'm sure some men, but mainly women, do, how many men are ashamed of how they behaved? Yeah, I mean... Do you know, I actually have had a really beautiful experience talking to so many different kinds of people about the book and about that idea in particular. 
And it is men and it is non-binary friends. And it is, I don't know, it's people of many genders. It's people of many walks of life. And we all do it in different ways. <laughs> there are like different flavors of it. But I don't think it's exclusive to women. I think it's exacerbated by patriarchy. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. but, I, but it's, I don't know. There is a sense of... Who feels ashamed? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe men are less often like waking up the day after a lovely party being like, did I do anything embarrassing? Maybe maybe women are more prone to that. Yeah, I mean, the book really is about the way we tell ourselves stories about how life should be. Mm-hmm. And then we try to live it out, no matter how uncomfortable that might be. Where do you think you formed your stories? I mean, my family, we, we learn things from our family. and. They're beautiful stories I was given about what life should be. And I saw how beautiful they were in the form of people I loved. And so it's it's not solely pernicious. It's really sort of generationally fraught in some ways. That's one dimension of it. But I mean, my grandparents got married. Actually, my grandfather was so young. He had been lying about his age. He was younger than my grandmother. They both sadly passed, but that also means I'm allowed to talk about this now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was so young and he lied about his age that he needed his mother to sign his wedding certificate. <laughs> and so like- Oh, like, that's so sweet. Yeah. And he didn't tell my grandmother either. And it wasn't <laughs> until, God- I can't remember where it would have been time-wise, possibly Korea, where she was like, oh my God, you're going to be drafted. You're going to go to war. And he's like, baby, I'm not old enough. Don't worry. And she was like, what? (laughs) How old does that mean he would have been? At the time? Like 17. He was really, really a babe. Um, And my grandmother was quite young as well, but just not. She wasn't like 35 or anything. (laughs) No, no. I mean, that would be kind of scandalous and glorious in its own way, but no. Um, but you know what I mean? Like they met young, they met in like the theater. It's like glamorous. They celebrated all these beautiful anniversaries together. And I saw that they had beautiful children. They traveled together. And just that, that was a story. That was a story. I was like, yeah, like I want to do that. Like I want to be like a young, beautiful pregnant lady. I want to be like the kids are off and now we're like in China, like learning to cook. Like I want to do that. Wow. So it's like, yes, it's a a story that it doesn't fit and I needed to get rid of it, but not because it was some be a Stepford wife kind of story. It was just a beautiful thing that it turns out is not what my life is. Have you got any idea of kind of what, what point in your life that you started to build your own new story? I mean, I honestly, it's sort of cliche, but I think deciding not to get married was really that moment for me. And I think, but again, I make the mistakes over and over again, but that was the beginning Mm -hmm. of it because at that point it was still possible that it was like, yeah, I'm going to marry this guy and we're going to have kids and we're going to live in this house in this little village and I'll have my job and like, this will be the thing. And I was old enough when that happened that it started to look uncertain whether or not all the things are still going to happen in traditional ways. And then I was sad because I felt like these things weren't going to happen. And then I had to interrogate like, well, why am I sad? Like, I like the things I have. There are other things I want to fight for and to make happen in my life or explore or try. Yeah. And it's a kind of grieving. Like I'm on some days I still grieve it. It's like, wouldn't it be so nice if everything just like looked the same way everyone else's things did? Um, <laughs> that would make everything and everything in the world is set up for you to be, you know, a lady in a house with a husband and a baby. And like, I'm just not going to be that. And nothing is set up for that, but it's okay. You make your own way. I really love a bit towards the end where you talk about being a little girl and not dreaming of weddings, but dreaming of houses. Yeah. I still dream of houses. <laughs> okay, God, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I never... I watch a lot of trashy reality TV and on my trashy reality shows, women are always like, I have dreamed of this day, my wedding day. And I'm like, oh, I've never, no, never that. But I always was like, what if I had my own garden? What if I had 10 dogs? Like, what if I lived with my best friend? Like, those are always the dreams I had. And I think that's kind of the life I am living now. Um, And that's the life I'm building for myself now. And that's how I'm like on days when some part of my brain wants to grieve, not living the thing I thought I was supposed to live or was going to live. It's like, no, the thing you wanted (laughs) 
was 10 dogs and a garden and your friends in your house all the time. And that's what you're doing. And there's love and there's romance too, but it's not the only thing that matters to make a person happy. And it's not always enough to make a person happy all on its own. So it's, it's cool to think more widely. I think it's that that's the standard, isn't it? Though The kind of heterosexual love marriage, even now. Yeah. I absolutely loved where you said you fancied yourself unconventional. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're so guilty of that, but then still kind of going through the hoops, trying to find the conventional thing. Yeah. It's like, just because I'm lucky enough to be like overeducated just because I don't know, I have weird tattoos. Like that doesn't mean (laughs) that I've protected myself from thinking those kinds of horrible norm queer policing thoughts. Um, And certainly the queer community has been thinking about this for so long and like I don't know my relationship with the queer community like it's been very gentle and very fostering in terms of like I don't know there's a history of doing this work of figuring out like so who's my family who is my chosen family and like freeing yourself from other people's expectations and I'm like deeply indebted to that kind of thinking and I'm really lucky to have had that in my life I just have to ask you how weird are your tattoos they're not that weird I have a bat and a beetle and a flower and some embarrassing literary one too (laughs) (laughs) If we were videoing, I would inevitably ask you if I could see it. And you would, <laughs> but you're saved by the fact that I would be the only one who could see it. So you <laughs> you're quite tough on yourself in the book about your relationship with your queerness and getting comfortable with your pansexuality. I mean, what was the point, do you think, that you started to kind of feel like, okay, this is a part of who I am? Do you know what? I think it's a weird kind of hang up I had because, well, maybe it's not that weird. It's actually probably very common, but I'm, I wasn't uncomfortable at all with the fact that I was attracted to women and people of other genders and trans people. And that's why pansexual as opposed to bisexual. But that was never the issue. Like that was just like a fact of who I was that I understood. I was uncomfortable saying it out loud because I felt like, I don't know, like I didn't have enough experience. I wasn't gay enough (laughs) to call myself (laughs) queer. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And they're like, well, I don't want to take up space. I don't want to take up space by doing that. And I really didn't. I like, I'm like other people, this is their space. And I don't want to bother them in their space by like saying, maybe I could come to that space on Tuesdays. (laughs) There's a good trivia night at the gay bar. I'd like to be there. Um, (laughs) But only Tuesdays and I won't come back till next Tuesday. I promise I won't come back Wednesday. Um, But I want to. And I think... Honestly, it's um, having friends who are younger than me. I I don't know how this has come to be. And I hope this is true for most people. But I have friends of a lot of different ages, like real friends. And I have friends who are much younger than me. And my queer friends who are much younger than me just don't see things that way. And like, that's a, a very generational hang up that um, they were like, no, what are you talking about? Like, you're welcome. <laughs> welcome. Hello, let's talk about the things. And that's so empowering. And I think it's a beautiful thing when, I don't know, friends in a community are welcoming or when friends of different generations offer you different kinds of wisdom. But I'm really, really grateful for that. It's really interesting. My glasses are steaming up. That's hot flush territory, I'm afraid. (laughs) Um, When I wrote the book, The Shift, I talked to a lot of women who had gone into the wrong life, if you like, and extricated themselves. And in some cases had just become sexually fluid after. But a couple of them, and I do wonder if it's generational, had come up against resistance, criticism from the lesbian community of their own age, older than you, basically being accused of being a tourist. Whereas for younger women, that doesn't seem to happen. My fear was I didn't want to be perceived as a tourist, and I did a lot of ethical worrying about that. Um, But (laughs) I I think that is... How to put this? I think that when a lot of work and struggle and sacrifice is done by a community to make a space and to create an identity, that then when that starts to broaden, shift, whatever it is, over time, things can feel threatening. And I think that's totally fair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To be like, no, we built this thing. And if you make it any less clear, any less safe and structured than it is, we might lose it. And don't mess it up unless it's for a really good reason. And like, that's that's a point of view I totally get. And so I think that might be where that comes from. Or maybe it's just generational. But I don't know. My experience is my, my career community has been nothing but the best part of my life. I'm, I'm loving and, I don't know, broad thinking. When you're uh, writing about children and fertility, I love the way you refer to your biological clock as Schrodinger's clock. Yeah. <laughs> 
It is. Who knows what's going on in there? (laughs) (laughs) Nobody, nobody knows what's going on in there. But something is, isn't it? And it's so weird. I mean, when I went into perimenopause in my mid 40s, it was like, I don't have children. I have a stepson. And I never particularly wanted or didn't want children. You know, it was just one of those things. But still, when I hit that point where having children was like clearly no longer going to happen, it was weird. There was a phase where it was really, it was really kind of difficult. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that makes all the sense to me. It's even if it's not a thing you want, it is a thing that, I mean, and not everyone gets the choice, but like if you do biologically, if you're lucky enough to have the choice, it's like, well, should I, should I use this thing I have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you decide officially, I guess I'm not going to use this thing I have. That's a weird, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. Um, and I'm not probably, I, I don't know, Schrodinger's clock with Schrodinger's mm-hmm. womb. I don't know if I'm at that point or not, but it's about a relationship to time that is really specific to people who have wombs and who are lucky enough to be fertile. Like it's uh, how to put this. It makes time really real (laughs) and it makes Mm -hmm. aging really real if those are the circumstances of your life. And I think a lot about how if that were not true, my experience of time and aging would be totally different. Or if I knew for certain, even if I did know for certain, it's just the fact that it's an ability, it's linked to time. And I think all the time about this Doctor Who episode that I really love, it's called The Girl Who Waited, I think. It's an 11th Doctor episode and they go to this weird planet and Amelia Pond gets stuck in this chamber where time moves quicker. And they're outside the chamber where time moves in like a regular, the way we experience it way. She's in the green waterfall room and they're in like the red mountain room. And so she's like aging and aging. She's like, help me. Like time is moving, moving, moving. And they're out there being like, it's only been a minute. Like you've only been there a minute. And by the time they find her, she's like aged and she's been like fighting evil robots for like lifetimes. And like in her boyfriend's life, it's been like five minutes and he's like, oh my God. And I think about that all the time. It's like, there's something about having the gift and the burden of fertility in one's body that feels like you're in a different time stream than other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure other people have their own versions of this. It's not unique to people with wombs, but I don't know. I think about the way it changes my relationship to time a lot. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, that kind of, I suppose, tyranny of time, which is like by 30, you should have done this. And by 40, you should have done this. And you should have done it that way. But underpinning that is like there is an element of truth. Yeah. I think it's easy enough for me to be like, throw out all the rules. We make our own lives. But certain things are non-negotiable. They are real about the world. (laughs) Yeah. 
you talk about another thing connected to that that was really interesting is where you talk about going through the process of understanding your body is for you and not for other people. Mm -hmm. And I think so many, I mean, a lot of the women that I interviewed for the book are a little older than you through to quite a bit older than you. So they were like 40 upwards. And it was it's really shocking how many women have not, you know, 50, 55, 60, 65 are not at peace with their body. Yeah. I mean, am I at peace with my body? Not always, but peace-ish, um, you know, peace-ish. <laughs> a compromise, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I think understanding even uh, just the other day, actually, this this bat tattoo is quite new, and my oh, my poor mother. I mean, I'm going to have to ask you to show me. I will. I love him. Yeah. He's very. I'm very proud of him. Um, yeah. But she was like, "Oh, why are you getting a bat that's so creepy, that's so morbid, and so unfeminine? And like, what are people going to think?" And she was like, "Don't you care what people think?" And I was like, "Not really." <laughs> Like there, there there are some things where I care about people's opinions, but when it comes to like whether or not someone likes that there is a bat on my arm or not, like, no, (laughs) it is mine. It is my body. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't dress to please other people. So why would I anything else? Would she be all right with the bat if it wasn't on a visible part of your body? No, no, she's not okay with it. My mother hasn't (laughs) even pierced her ears. So she's very horrified by my whole existence. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Um, tell me about your unified theory of shitty men. (laughs) Oh God. I mean, I think it comes down to, I'm always trying to get to the bottom of things and resolve them because I have this delusional sense that if I can just understand a problem or a mistake I'm making, then I won't make it again. And I think the book is a lot about accepting the fact that (laughs) knowledge is in no way protection from making more mistakes, different mistakes, or even the same mistakes. So I tried to be like, if I can figure out what it is I'm attracted to that's going wrong, hence a unified field theory of shitty men, um, I won't make mistakes again. But just because I stopped dating boys and bands, it didn't help. (laughs) Boys and bands are the source of a lot of evil, aren't they? (laughs) Oh, but so much fun as well. (laughs) That's the trouble, though. It's that kind of balance. I mean, you're so tough on yourself about your taste in men. (laughs) You know, like, you know, the bad boys and the arty types and the boys in bands and the boyfriends without borders. And I think so many of us have gone there. And where do you think those boys in bands end up, apart from in rehab, you know? Oh, I think they're at the same dive bar that I go to. I, and the thing is, like, if I'm being really honest about it, like, I might as well be a girl in a band. Like, I play music. I have, I don't know, I like to sit at the dive bar and drink too many bad beers. Like, I am I am the female equivalent of that in many ways. Um, and so I think I'm so able to be joking about that type because it's like, mea culpa. <laughs> um, I think there's a kind of behavior that is a thing that I am attributing to men, but perhaps is relevant to people of other genders as well, where it's like, uh, if I never choose a person, a life, a job, a whatever it is, if I make no choices, if I never commit to anything, then I'm keeping all my options open forever. And, and I think that there's a kind of anxiety around making choices that I understand. But my experience has been that I make choices and they don't always last forever. And so it's like I feel sort of weirdly freed by the fact that nothing seems so permanent as that. But I think that's what it comes down to with that type of men I'm writing about that they, I don't know, it's a kind of brain that sees choosing something definitive as a kind of death. <laughs> Do you still feel that way? Do I feel that way? No, I like to choose things. Yeah. And I'm always sort of hoping they will last. And sometimes they last and sometimes they don't. And it is the work of my life to sort of, I'm like a a bad fake Buddhist. Like I'm a person who's just always trying to accept impermanence and, and enjoy things as they happen and on their own terms. And I'm not good at it, but I work at it a lot. <laughs> Do you still consider yourself a, a breakup pro? quite a beautiful thing to be a breakup pro in a way I think it means I'm like a master of endings (laughs) and and it's again it comes to not being good at them but the lovely thing about surviving hard things is that even in the depths of them whether it's a breakup or a period of sadness or whatever it is um the winter 
period. Uh, in the middle of it, it's like, this is never going to end. Like, I am always going to feel this way. These feelings are my whole life and everything is so hopeless. But because I've made plenty of mistakes, I can remember like, no, I felt this way last time or some species of this last time. And then eventually I didn't feel this bad anymore. And so in a way, it's helpful to remember this is just part of it. It's not this way forever. <laughs> My dog has things to say. Oh, okay. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, he's fine. He's been quite quiet. He's just been like snuffling around. He hasn't been... completely gratuitously because I want to talk about the Muppets Ah. I'm going to take you back to the unified theory of shitty men because it was you had three things that they had to like didn't you this was sort of a late night drunken like there's a moment like three beers deep where you're like I've understood everything and it's like I have to write it on this cocktail napkin (laughs) and I had written down it's like okay here's what everyone had in common that was a problem in my life as if the problem was them and not me it's that they have to like the Muppets, <laughs> big dogs, and the ocean. And I was like, everyone I ever dated where one wrong, like either didn't like all of those or didn't like some of them. And that's a problem. So if I only date men who like those three things, then I'll be fine, which is psychopathic. It's not uh, any kind of certainty in that at all, but it's what I came up with. <laughs> well, it's, it's not psychopathic at all because I immediately thought, yeah. Yeah, you could totally make that. Do all your friends like the Muppets? No, they don't. (laughs) And some of them don't like the sea. And some of them are little dog people or cat people. And that's fine too. And so why would I hold my partner to a different (laughs) standard than my friends? But I think it was a sense of, in defense of my drunken brain, I think what it was trying to come up with in those things was a sense of like joy and messiness and silliness that the sea and the Muppets and big dogs represent to me. It's like, you can't control everything. Like, it's a mess. Like, here's this big, lovely dove animal who I can't control and is going to bark throughout this podcast. And like, the sea is beyond your control. And I love being in the sea. And just, I don't know, not liking the Muppets. I, I th- the Muppets are great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really made me think I love Muppet Christmas Carol above me all too. else. <laughs> oh, my God. The singing sprouts, everything about it. And it did make me think, oh, somebody who didn't think that The Muppet Christmas Carol was the best Christmas film of all time, they might have to go. It's a hard sell. I like, there's certain parts that still make me cry. Like I get very emotional when Kermit is on his late night walk on only one more sleep till Christmas. And I will say, actually, I'm, I'm dating someone at the moment and we had been friends and I was trying not to like let a thing become a relationship. I'm like, I can't be dating right now. But it was Christmas time. We started talking about the Muppet Christmas Carol and he was like, I fucking love the Muppet Christmas Carol. And I was like, me too. And then on Christmas, we were like sending each other clips of like, Fozzie being Fezziwig and throwing the rubber yes. party. And it's like, this is the spirit of Christmas. And I was like, oh, I'm going to date this person, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, it has to be fun. Anybody who, you know, uses the light the lamp, not the rat hashtag. Ah, yes. <laughs> I think, you know, as ways of weeding out losers, there are worse. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> But that whole essay circles around again, like my idea, like I'm always trying to protect myself from feeling scared again or in pain again um, by coming up with some sort of rubric or rule that's going to keep me from risking anything. And you can't. You, unfortunately, um, you have to risk things if you're going to make meaningful relationships and love and friendship and family, like whatever it is, like risk is part of that. And I could come up with all the unified theories I want, and that's not going to change it. Um, Before I ask you all the questions I usually ask, we need to talk about Philadelphia story. Yes. Because you have ruined it for me. I'm so sorry. Mori, sorry too. (laughs) Yeah, Moriarty's pissed off as well. (laughs) He's such a gorgeous dog. I wish everybody could see him because he's so lovely. (laughs) very fluffy with a big long head and he's like peering out the windows like he's going to do something about the students walking back to their dorms but he's not going to do anything (laughs) no he's actually kiss their faces if he saw them (laughs) 
He's actually your Instagram, isn't he? Actually, he so is. listeners can go and see Moriarty. Is it at the Dog Philosopher? Yes, he is the Dog Philosopher, and he is my. It's the only social media I do, and it's Mori social media. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not a bad plan. Anyway, the Philadelphia story, it made me realize that I watch it like I'm 13, even now. And the way you talk about what you saw when you were 13 and what you saw when you were 30 and what you see now. And I think I never stopped watching it like a 13-year-old. Oh my God, I love that. That's so beautiful. But wait, but what does that mean you're rooting for or like most invested in for you? Um, I think I did have a soft spot for Dex. Yeah. Did have a soft spot for Dex and not just because it was Cary Grant. But when you point out that she left him because he hit her. Yeah. It's just like, oh my God, that's not a happy ending. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's the first thing you know about them is you see that scene and it's it's silent, which is so interesting. Like it's a very talky movie, dialogue at a breakneck pace. But that part, no one talks about it. You just see it. You know it's happened. You know it's why they split up. And yet the logic of the film is like, yeah, of course they're going to get back together. Um, and that's that's hard. And I'm not my, – my attitude toward the Philadelphia story is like, isn't it horrible that like, the film is advocate? No. Like I, I just think that there's a way that the setup of the three men in that movie – it's like, okay, what's the right answer? Is it A, B, or C? And so much of what I'm up to in this book of essays is trying to be like, there is not just A, B, and C. Like, what is the right thing for Catherine Hepburn to do, which isn't choose between this multiple choice of different lives that these men are dictating. And like, there's, she can exit the matrix and she doesn't really. Well, Tracy Lord does it. Hepburn definitely did. That's a separate thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. But also, it made me think about Liz, the photographer who is, um, is it Mike Connor? Yeah, it's Macaulay Mike Connor. (laughs) Mike Connor's partner in work and life. And it really did make me think, do you know what? He's with her and she's there the whole time and you don't see her. Mm -hmm. And it tells you so much about the way that, you know, whether it's the woman who's the star and the lead and the Catherine Hepkin, Tracy Lord character or or Liz quietly in the corner doing all the work. Yeah. I mean, a person could almost forget that they have a deadline. (laughs) And like, (laughs) he's not helping at all. And she's there being like, we're going to get the story to press. And then in the meantime, she's like driving around trying to pick him up when he's drunk and gallivanting with Catherine Hepburn. One of my favorite lines is when she shows up to pick him up and she goes, where is my wandering parakeet? And then you sort of hear him inside the building still being like, ah, da, 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 and is Jimmy Stewart way just still talking? And it's like, yeah, there's Liz again, making it all happen. Fixing it. Mm-hmm. Sorting it all out. Waiting for him to get on her level, essentially. <laughs> oh, man. It's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> And yet yeah. the movie is still, in spite of all of that, again, like, I don't believe in just I love it. outright I condemning love things. It. I love it. It's a joyful movie. It's a funny movie. I love things that are funny at the same time, that they're devastating and true. And, and that movie is both. And it knows it's both. God, what's his name? The one she's meant to marry. Is it George? George Kidridge. George. You know, he's the correct one. He's the right one. And so you root against him. Yeah. But poor George. He never <laughs> did anything wrong. <laughs> No, he's just not um, toxic in an exciting way. (laughs) He's just there being like, yeah, I'd like to marry you. My reasons are kind of shallow. It just seems right. But like, he's not a bad dude. He's just, um, and he like grew up broke. And his motivation as a character is like, okay, I want to ascend. I want to be rich. I want to have the rich people things and have a nice, lovely, rich person secure life. That is what George wants for himself. Mm -hmm. And part of that is marrying the right person. He's just trying to play by all the rules. And George didn't make the rules. Like it's the Cary Grants and the Catherine Hepburns of that society who made those rules. And he's just trying to play by them. And everyone's like, ugh, you're so terrible. (laughs) Yeah, you're so boring playing by these rules because we can afford not to play by these rules, even though we made them. Mm-hmm. <sighs> on that note I'm going to ask you the questions that I always ask uh what's your emotional age oh that's so beautiful 
it's funny. I just showed up for Easter with my sister um, and we were talking about sort of emotional ages and things. And then she just sort of like looked down her glass at me because I was wearing this jumpsuit covered in like planets and space and ladies. And I don't know, I was wearing this crazy Miss Frizzle outfit. So my emotional age might be somewhere around 18. Maybe that's why I'm good at hanging out with 18 year olds. (laughs) Give us a book recommendation. It can be one that's been really significant throughout your life, or it can just be a great book that you read the other day. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And now I'm going blank uh, about what I'm reading. The thing that really knocked my socks off most recently was Claire Watkins's um, I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness. I love her. Oh, it's so good. That book is beautiful, right? It's autofiction. So it's like, it's a novel. It's a memoir. It's a novel. It's a memoir. It's written by a woman named Claire about a character named Claire. And I just love how unflinching it is and how honest it is about the kinds of feelings we feel in moments without trying to like make them make sense, just like dignifying their existence and their time specificness and their, oh, it's messy and it's beautiful. And I love it. What advice would you give younger women? I think, and I'm going to say younger people too, because I Mm -hmm. think gender is like so, it is so freeing to admit the constraints that have to do with gender, but to not feel like it's a kind of destiny either in that it has to be your gender forever or that it's the only way people are going to see you. I would like younger people to feel like they have that power. Um, I've enjoyed sort of trying to find my way towards that power. Um, But I think the advice is like, when you think about what's going to make you happy or content or healthy, which are not the same things, what is it that you're measuring yourself against? Like, where did the story of what that looks like come from? And do you like that story? And do you accept it? Or are you shooting for something that's like not yours? And can you redefine what it is you're going after? As you kind of head into your 40s this is not like a proper question this is just me throwing an extra question in for good measure how are you feeling about that decade coming up from where you are now oh I'm really excited about it (laughs) (laughs) I am into it I hope my back holds out I hope my knees hold out like just in a purely (laughs) physical way like there's a lot of physical stuff I like to do. And so like, I need to be nicer to my physical body. I know in order to keep being able to do beautiful things I like to do. Um, But you can pay me to go back. Like I know I said my emotional age is 18, but like, I don't know, you couldn't pay me to go back and be a younger age again, because I really love the like ability I have found with each passing year to be like, oh, I can bear more than I thought I could bear. And like, I'm going to be okay. Or to take care of myself in new ways to like enjoy things that are sort of like calm and lame and safe on some days, as opposed to always going after the shiniest story. Again, a mistake I'm still making, but working on it. And all of that is a thing that just happens more and more every year older I get. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what else I'm wrong about. I can't wait to figure (laughs) out what new ways of like peace and learning are going to come for me. Who's your old bird role model? My old bird role model? Oh my God, that's the best. (laughs) Well, first of all, can I just be Catherine Hepburn? Um, Yeah, get in line. (laughs) Yeah, Catherine Hepburn, like for, for characters who are in the book. So Catherine Hepburn, yes. Gillian Anderson, yes. She's, um, oh my God, the comedian Ali Colbert calls this bucking when it's a person that's like, I don't know if I want to sleep with you or if I want to be you. It's complicated. And so Julian Anderson is that person, isn't she? She is. (laughs) And you made me totally want to watch X-Files right from the beginning. Oh, it's so delightful to be in there. Um, But I will say too, like on a personal note, I have a writer friend, my writer friend, Jennifer, and I work together here at the university where I teach. And she is so, she's like deeply graceful and like full of social graces, but she's also like a badass, like a complete badass. And like, I'll just see her like draw a line and be like, no, we're going to do this and we're not going to do this. And she's so elegant and she does it and she's so cute. And like, I just, that combination and that like, sometimes I perceive like a certainty about her. Like she is my, my role model in a big way as well. But she's not an old bird. I have to say that. She's only yeah. a little bit older than me. Yeah. <laughs> What's your superpower? Mm. <laughs> Empathy. Imagining what someone else is going on. Like I feel it like a tiny disturbance in the forest. And I'm like, are you okay? 
I felt a twinge. What's going on over there? And someone will be like, how could you possibly know? And I'm like, I felt a twinge. What's happening with you? And that's um, it's a thing I enjoy being able to do. Is that sometimes a negative, do you think? Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's like yeah. um, it's like in those superhero movies where someone can hear other people's thoughts and they go out in the street and it's like overwhelming and it's crowding in on them. So I have to learn how to like recenter on like, what are you thinking or feeling right now as opposed to... Like, how is everyone in this room and like trying to manage it and make sure everyone's safe and happy? But that's a teacher problem, too. It's hard to turn it off. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Oh, absolutely none. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, about the right things a lot, like about the planet, about my people and my chosen family and my biological family who I take care of, all the fucks. But about like what anyone else has to say about my bat tattoo, zero fucks. And on that note, you have to show me your bat tattoo. Oh, I will. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) He is new. This is why I'm so hyped on him. Um, So he lives right here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, he's great. (laughs) He's carrying little flowers, little bouquets of flowers. This is my pollinator arm. (laughs) (laughs) Below the bug. Below the bugs. Yeah. (laughs) That's where he lives. Thank you so much. I love talking to you and I love your bat tattoo. Thank you so much. It was lovely to talk like humans. I enjoyed it a lot. (laughs) Thank you, CJ. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash the shift. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.